0: This is Just the Right Book, and I am Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. I hope to bring to you some of the very best nonfiction authors, conversations you want to hear about the books you want to read. Anna Quinlan has the uncanny ability to write about what has been rattling around in our own brains. Having done this for 21 books, making it seem so easy to do, She's conversational, appealingly unadorned. We could do that, ha. It's like watching a modern dancer without understanding they took years of ballet. But in her latest book, Anna reminds us we can write, maybe not best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning writing like hers, but nonetheless important, connective, and potentially life-changing, at least for us and those in our lives. Her latest book, Right for Your Life, reminds us why it matters, how we can start and what it could mean. Anna, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Thanks. It's so good good to be with you, Roxanne, <laughs> always in person, on podcasts, whatever oh, medium. Oh, you're
0: so sweet. You know, I was thinking about and I will talk about it a little bit later that when I think about your columns, like particularly life uh, in the 30s, right? Because I lived in New York in those years. I'm a little bit older than you, but basically, and and it made me realize that people must think they know you. You know, they must just people, assume they know you. People do assume
1: that they know me, um, and they're a little—they're always a little shocked to find that I actually take physical form. So they rear back and say, "What?" You know. One of my favorite stories (laughs) along those lines is um, I have a house in Pennsylvania and I was sending a a big box of books to a shelter for um, victims of domestic violence in Canada. Somebody had reached out to me and I brought this big box of books in and put it on the counter and the woman was looking at the forms I'd had to fill out to send it to Canada and she looked and she said, Anna Quinlan, you know, there's a very famous writer, by the way. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she said, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, she, and you could tell she was thinking there are no writers coming into the post office in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania.
0: Oh my God. I love that. But we actually have met many times and do know each other. So yes. it, it's, yes. And it's great to like, you know, Zoom, Zoom see you. Uh, so let's start with, with Um, you you call the writing that you're talking about civilian writing. And let's start with what's the most civilian of writing um, that most of us know, diaries. And you open the book talking about the most famous of diaries, Anne Anne Frank's, uh, written while she was in hiding uh, from the Nazis. Now, most of us when we think about the diaries we might've had at 13, we think of like flowers and, and um, these kind of flimsy locks. And if they were discovered, we would likely cringe at the banality or idiocy of what we, we were writing. But nonetheless, when you talk about Anne Frank's diary, which started as a diary, you feel that nonetheless, that ought to motivate us.
1: Absolutely. Because first of all, Anne Frank is doing what writing can do for all of us. And by all of us, I mean, not only writers, professional writers, but people who don't think of themselves as writers at all. And that is it enables you to talk to yourself in a way that makes your life apprehensible to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, Anne Frank gets this diary on her 13th birthday. It is kind of a flimsy thing. It doesn't have flowers on it. It has plaid fabric on it. Mm. She names it Kitty. She personifies it and says, I'm gonna to talk to you in a way I can't talk to anyone else. So she's really talking to herself. And you talk about how if we looked at our own journals or diaries from, from our girlhoods, we would cringe. Lots of Anne Frank's diary is about really quotidian things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about you know what they're eating and 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 how badly everyone thinks she behaves and the footsteps and it's it's the reader who puts this overlay on the diary mm. of saying, okay, she's writing about all these small things and at the end. You know, and of course, most of us know that Anne died in Bergen-Belsen. And then her father pulled together the diary and published it. And so it's a useful lesson in saying you can write down the ordinary facts of your own life. And perhaps sometime in the future, someone will come upon that. And with that overlay of time, say this teaches me something about living or prevailing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mistake to think that writing that's important is about mega subjects. And I particularly feel that as a female novelist, because what we look at historically is that many male novelists tend to write about the big war right? Yeah. War, um, con- horrible conflict, um, uh, whaling vessels, and so on and so <laughs> forth. Female novelists tended to write about the small moments of daily life. I mean, that's what Jane Aust- Jane Austen is writing about, men and marriage and money, even Middlemarch, the small moments yeah. of daily life. And I think it is important. That- That's where we learn to apprehend the world. And those are the things that we can write about in journals and letters.
0: So when I was reading this, I, I often use my journal to sort of think through challenges. And a lot of times I find that my hand starts writing about something that isn't what I thought I was going to write about. But it's almost like unconscious like an unconscious flow. But if I were hit by a bus and someone picked up my 30 or 40 years of journals, I would worry about what I had written. Um, And so when you think about journal writing, how do you advise people to balance that the benefit, you know, it's got these conflicting strands. One is the process for you using it to be reflective to think about things, to learn about things, you know, all the stuff that you and I would know. But on the other hand, you're leaving a record or, or either on purpose or accidentally. So how should someone keeping a diary or a journal think about the role of honesty? In it
1: Well, I think I think there are two different impulses there that you've teased out, Roxanne, and you've got to ask yourself which impulse is motivating you if one of the things you're doing is to write things down so that you can look at them and say that is not as terrible as I thought it was. Mm. That's not as as destabilizing as I thought it was. That's one kind of journal. The journal that you might not mind your granddaughter, finding in a box is probably in some ways a different kind of journal. So I think that you have to make a decision about what you want to put down on paper based on how comfortable you are with future generations reading it. On the other hand, I think if you're grappling with difficult difficult situations, difficult ideas, difficult experiences, You know, one of the great uses of writing for people down the road is to look and say, I am not alone. Mm. You know, when you read about something that your mother went through or your grandmother, and you suddenly realize that it's a cousin or a sister to exactly what you're going through, there's something so, so empowering yes exactly empowering sorry i just lost words there that's okay really and and that sense look i think the the uses of reading and the uses of writing, first and foremost are for people to be able to say to themselves i am not alone Mm. because isolation that sense of a loss of connection and community is one of the greatest if not the greatest besetting ills Of modern life, yeah, and that's why you know you read you read great novels and you say, "I'm not alone," and you write something that someone else responds to, and you say, "I'm not alone." And I think that's that's all to the good.
0: Yeah, you know, and it is that is an interesting element about it because one of the things that reminds me is uh, Kevin, my husband when Edward, our son, was born, started writing a journal to Edward. And the journal does talk about challenges and happy moments, but it is written to Edward. But it is, you know, and I hadn't thought about Kevin managed to sort of knowingly intersect those things because it is, I've never read it, but from what he's described, it's fairly unfiltered. Because he well, thinks Edward he would have loved to know what his father was thinking. Exactly. Our
1: parents are a mystery to us. Now I feel you're making me feel a little guilty. Because <laughs> I have I have three children, as you know. Yes. My first two children are less than two years apart. And not long ago, my kids were all cleaning out their various rooms, otherwise known as the shrine, in <laughs> this house in New York. And they came ac- upon Quinn's baby book, my, my my elder son, which is extremely detailed, very dear, pretty filtered. I look at it in retrospect and think, I was really playing the sweetness <laughs> of life card here. But the other for- two... <laughs> Chris and Maria were both like, so like, and what could I say? I bought a baby book for Chris. It has Chris's name in it. It has his birth weight in it. It has nothing else in it. And I didn't even
0: get one for Maria. But, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of, and and I'm skipping around a little, um, but uh, that's okay. You know, you talk about your parents and what you have and don't have from them. And I'd like you to share that. But what you're talking about with the baby books reminds me that one of the things that I recommend to grandparents in the bookstore who say they want their grandchildren to know them, but they don't know where to start, is there are good grandparent books that prompt you and they prompt, some of the best ones prompt you in a very interesting way. Like they say, where'd you have dinner? Did you eat in the kitchen? Did you eat in the dining room? You know, did your bedroom have a window? What did it look out onto? What time did you get up to go to school? You know, who, how'd you get to school? And, and it, it, by virtue of objective questions... Which makes it easier for some people to fill out, really explore the life.
1: That's that's a wonderful idea and a wonderful mechanism. The flip side is as as you know, um I wrote a book about being a grandmother several years ago called Nanaville. And I the only reason I agreed to do it was because my son and his wife both seemed enthusiastic about it at that point they only had one child their son arthur and they said it's fine except we would like to look at the manuscript just in case yeah which i would have shown them anyhow so i I finish the book and i give them the manuscript and the two of them are reading it and i hear them saying oh i totally forgot about that Oh, remember when he did that? Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, you know, when you have a, a little baby, everything's kind of a blur for about a year. And the fact that the book enabled them to recover some of
0: their memories yeah. of their first year with Arthur... Was a reminder. ...made the entire project worthwhile for me. So, Anna, what uh, what made it worthwhile for me is... Yesterday I took a walk um, and I was you know preparing for this interview but I thought I never listened to Nanaville or or read it so I took you on my walk and so I'm walking along and I break out you know you're by yourself and people are like you know we're used to people looking crazy now by themselves but please share the opening story because uh, I I was hysterical. I've laughed about it for 24 hours about you open the book with Arthur going, Nana, Nana.
1: No, it says in a very sweet little with <laughs> the hand on my leg, Nana. And I go, yes, honey, because he was not verbal at that point. Nana. Yes, sweetheart. What is it? And he goes, Nana and points to the fruit bowl on the on the mudroom table and I realized he is not saying my name he wants a banana <laughs> and, and it was sort of this moment of realizing
0: okay get over yourself you're just along for the ride yeah that was that was such a good what your line was that you're a supporting actor
1: Absolutely. But uh, you know, I think it's really important that you get a handle on that when you're a grandparent, because the best, the best line in the book, all the best lines in all my books, all my nonfiction books come from other people. Mm. I I will cop to that. And the best line in that book is from my friend, Susan Parent. Yes, that is really her name, (laughs) who's a teacher, who, when I told her this whole story about how the kids weren't listening to me about something, finally said very sweetly, did they ask you? Mm. And it was like a light going off in my head. And I was like, this is it. For the duration, did they ask you? And if not, hold your peace. You know, really, it's a, it's, it's what, what psychologists call a mediated relationship yeah, it means there is someone in between you and the other person. And, you know, in a mediated relationship, you better keep the mediators on your side or else you're cooked.
0: Well, and, you know, not to get even further off the point, but the other good point, in fact, I'm going to, I'm just going to now send the book to a bunch of friends who are grandparents. But the other thing that I thought was smart is you talked about not being co-conspirators with your grandchild, like don't tell mommy or don't tell daddy. It's like, of course, they're gonna go tell mommy and daddy. And now you've like derailed the whole triangle.
1: Or sometimes they come to you with stuff. Arthur the other morning um, and I were having breakfast together and he said, Nana, now that I, we we have breakfast together before anybody else is awake. Nana, now that I've had my cereal, can I have some chocolate for my Easter basket? And I said, I am not authorized to allow you chocolate. I am not authorized. That is not my job. Said, it's got to be mommy or daddy. I cannot give you chocolate. (laughs) Despite all of those wonderful stories about how the grandparents let you do things that the parents would never let you do. uh -uh. No, no. (laughs) No.
2: How fun is it to look at your home and think about all the different things you can do? The new couches you could buy, moving things around to see where maybe the TV could look better, different pieces of artwork that you can have hanging up. I can spend a whole afternoon just looking online or watching home decorating shows, just daydreaming about new decor. And if you're like me, you love the idea of redecorating your space, but wouldn't it be great if you could see your interior design ideas come to life. Give Redecor a try. Redecor is an interior decorating mobile game that's so much fun to play. Redecor is a great creative outlet that lets your imagination run wild. Experiment with different colors, materials, and textures as you design room after room. While well, the challenges are really great, I just love expressing my own creativity and seeing all the different things that I can do with a single space. And it's the perfect game to play when you're on the move, maybe on the subway, in between meetings, or just right before the end of the day. And what makes Redecor different is that you can take the fun that you have in the gaming space and bring all that creativity to your own life. And it's fun to test your own creativity. You enter your designs and challenges and let other players be the judge. Read the design brief and impress other fellow Reed decorators by choosing the best combination of colors, textures, and materials out of a variety of options. And you submit your best design and you can reap the rewards if you come out on top. So practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with Read the Download Read the for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R E D E C O R on the App Store or Google Play Store.
0: Uh, So one last thing um, on diaries that I thought about when, you know, I was talking about the journal that where I look like a troubled, you know, pathetic woman But the other thing that I discovered, we moved out of the house that we had lived in for 30 years. I had a Peanuts calendar from my senior year in high school. And I I wrote one or two sentences in each day's box, hardly skipping a day. But what I realized is in there, I met my husband of 52 years in my senior year. And there, on a day in the little box for mem- over Memorial Day weekend in 1967, it says met Kevin Coding.
1: Okay, may I say <laughs> that is a family heirloom? <laughs> Come on, that is a family heirloom. You know, a uh, calendar. Yeah, but but that little bit of writing. I mean, I I was talking to a woman who told me she has a diary that our journal that says on the front page, an attitude of gratitude. And she only writes on it in it on Sunday mornings. Mm. And she writes a couple of paragraphs and the paragraphs are always about something specific that happened in the last week that she's grateful for. And every time I hear someone say, I don't have the time to write or I don't have anything to write about, I think about that woman and think one morning a week, a couple of paragraphs, and she said she's been doing this for six or seven years, and she looks back now on the early ones, and they really make her remember the most important stuff of her life, and yeah. that's the point of the exercise.
0: Yeah. And so what are the um, this is this is now moving on to the power of writing. So two of the most inspiring and eye-opening books that I have read are Mark Salzman's True Notebooks about teaching a writing course in L.A.'s Central Juvenile Hall, a lockup for violent teenage offenders, and I couldn't keep it to myself, essays written by Wally Lamb and women who had been incarcerated in the York Correctional Institution here in Connecticut who had been his writing students uh, when he taught at the prison. And you talk about Erin Grunwell and her program at Wilson High School in Long Beach, California, called Freedom Writers. Th- these stories that I think we're just beginning to understand about the power of writing, talk about what, talk about Erin's program or any element of how bringing writing to people who never, absolutely never thought of themselves as writers can do?
1: Well, first of all, there's that sense of competency, right? So Erin walks into this classroom in in Long Beach, California. She's a new teacher. So they've given her the group of kids that are considered unteachable. Some of them have learning disabilities. Um, Some of them have been failing out of school. Some of them have already been in trouble with the police. And her attitude is if she can get them to write every day in these journals, that it will give them this sense of competency. And she throws away the usual suspects, okay? She throws away spelling. She throws away punctuation. She throws away grammar. She just lets them vent. They all think she's absolutely out of her mind, we can't write, you know, and they fight her on it. And she says, you know, write about this and write about that. Over the course of four years, they become so adept at writing about the horrible difficulties in some of their lives, that it becomes a book that winds up being a Times bestseller called the Freedom Writers Diary. So at a threshold level, they get this sense that they're so much more competent than anyone has ever suggested. At another level, they get the sense that they can speak the unspeakable.
2: Mm.
1: So a a couple of the the students who have been sexually uh, assaulted in a variety of ways, not right away, but as the years go on, write about that. Students who have been ashamed of the fact that they are worried about being deported because their parents have no papers write about that students who have actually you know gotten in trouble with the law and there's one boy who writes about his shiny new gun suddenly it seems that nothing nothing about their lives is out of bounds if Mm -hmm. they're willing to take a look at it and that's so powerful and the end result with Aaron's students is that they do so much better after graduation than anybody could have ever expected. I mean, there's one who who talks about how much she hated to write and how terrible she thought it was and how she fought Miss Gruel on it. and she's writing those recollections at the same time that she's preparing for the oral presentation for her doctorate. Wow. so so it it just it lifts you up. I mean, look, people people don't write because they're intimidated by it. And one reason they're intimidated by it is because it's about confidence. It's about standing up and saying, hello, I have something to say and you should listen to it. But for people like that, for people like Wally Lamb's students or Mark's students or Aaron's students, having someone say, do you have something to say? I'd like to hear it. is so empowering because mm-hmm. they feel that nobody has ever wanted to hear what they have to say.
0: Yeah, and and yet you talk about in the book how the way we teach writing in schools, and this is not, this is not. Um, we're not condemning all writing teachers. There are obviously incredibly talented writing teachers out there, but this this drive towards grades or common core testing, even if it's not to get into college, is driving a way of teaching writing that you talk about is upending their ability to write, their interest in writing. So, Explain to us what it is they're doing and what it is they could be doing. And maybe along the way, you'll recite for us your first poem.
1: (laughs) Um, The problem is, they're not teaching writing. Yeah. And, And as you said, this is not dinging teachers. No. Nobody nobody genuflects to teachers like I do. I, as I say in the book, I am a writer because of teachers, because of the positive reinforcement I got from them. But between standardized testing, standardized curriculum, and parental pressure to teach students something they can use writing as a discursive, creative exercise really falls by the wayside. The National Writing Project, which has been working on writing in schools since the mid 70s, says that since the Common Core came into practice, the kind of writing from the heart, from the soul, has been almost completely obliterated in most schools. And what's called writing is Uh, There were three main causes of the American Revolution, uh, uh, identify and describe. So it's like three sentences that call for no creativity or no personal thought at all. um, And that for, for a lot of teachers are easier to grade, to work on, to give feedback on, then say a long essay about something. I mean, you know, the devastating story which I recount in the book is, uh, you know, I have, I have these three children and my first son. um, Well, all three of my children are quite good writers and my eldest son took the SAT achievement test in writing and did beautifully on it. And two years later, he's at the breakfast table with his brother, who is now a young adult novelist and a music journalist and is so creative. And, and he's sitting with Christopher, who's getting ready to go take the same test. And Quinn says to him, whatever you do, Christopher, don't be creative.
2: Mm.
1: And what he's saying is, here's how they're going to score you, dude. Intro paragraph, three body paragraphs. Conclusion, nothing, nothing jazzy, nothing, you know, don't don't be quoting Gandhi or <laughs> Led Zeppelin or anything. And it just made my heart sink to think yeah. that's how kids learn about writing, because that's why kids don't become writers, because that's an exercise that's so dull and so contrary to the voice of your soul that why would you put in the effort to do it?
0: Yeah, and, and I do think coupling it with what we talked about with Erin um, or, or Mark or, or Wally's students is there's something about the writing of something that comes from you and physically converting it to a piece of paper that can be read that all by itself Is self-enhancing. Yes. You know, and I hadn't never I hadn't really thought about that, Anna, until I read the book, that the physicality of it, you know, what in a minute we'll talk about writing versus typing. But it as I'm listening to you, it makes me realize that that that's kind of audacious, right? I'm thinking I'm nobody, I'm thinking I can't write. And now a teacher's saying, Write whatever you want. Right. But it, it it does two
1: competing things at the same time, which is the magic, Roxanne. You You think about it and you pull your thoughts together and you put it down on the computer screen or on paper. And it not only elevates it, sometimes it diminishes it. So that when you're writing about something that rocketing around in your head seems like an enormous source of anxiety, on paper, you look at it and think, hmm, oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. And so, so there's that ability to give you perspective on it that you don't have when you're just thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what I want to um, go on to is, uh, oh, by the way, we've sort of addressed this, but I do want to make sure that we give credit. I know you didn't have two journals for your younger two kids but you do say in the book how you bundled up all of your books for each of your three kids understanding it was your last will and testament to them
1: well it's true I mean one one of the reasons that I want people to write is so that after they're gone their children can pull a letter out of a drawer and say she lives yeah you know she lives and I'm a very lucky woman because my ace in the hole is I've got this entire shelf, and every time one of my kids looks at any page in any of them, they can say, "She lives." But mm-hmm. I think, I think it's possible to do that, perhaps not in as is expansive a way, but in some way for anybody who wants to leave that that sense of themselves behind for their kids or their grandkids.
0: Yeah. So you write that the cell phone and its big brother, the laptop, makes the personal letters seem obsolete. Like, why why write a letter if you can send an email? Why would anyone knit a sweater if you could buy one online? Why would you bake a cake when you could buy one? Or most appallingly, why read a book when you can watch the movie? (laughs) So, Anna Quinlan, what's the answer, darling?
1: The answer is that they're different and we don't have to live a zero sum game that it, we're a country that loves the idea of a zero sum game. It has to be either or. OK, so there were uh, I've read them. There were endless pieces when paperback books were finally popularized. It said, well, that's it. We don't need hardcovers." The hardcovers are good. gone. That's right. The hardcovers are gone because we have paperbacks and there were almost identical kinds of pieces when the movies added, became talkies about the theater. Well, people, you know, why would you go to the theater to see a long day's journey into night when you can see the movie? And the truth is that various forms of the same thing can exist and can answer different people's different needs. Mm. So, you know, knitting a sweater is time consuming and the sweater that results may not look exactly like the sweater that you buy in the department store but every time you look at it you think i made this yeah and it 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 gives you a a different kind of feeling now a hundred years ago if you wanted to tell me that um you were opening a bookstore you would send me a letter saying, I'm opening this bookstore, here's where it's going to be, right? Obviously, today, you send me an email saying that, you put it on Instagram or something, but if you wanted to send me a letter saying, your friendship has meant so much to me, and I've had a difficult time, and time and time again, I've turned to you, and you've been so responsive, that's not an email, that's a letter, you know, when you think about the things that that should be letters, condolences. Yeah, condolences should be letters. Even even acknowledging a new baby in the family, a note. Oh, I'm so thrilled for you. Yeah, there are certain things that cry out for a slower, more thoughtful method of communication.
0: And Anna, don't you think? I mean, I think about when I was at camp one year. You know, when you get a letter from your sister or your parents or, you know, this is like a thrill. And I don't think that thrill is any different. It might have even gotten magnified because of its uniqueness.
1: Totally agree. Um, I mean... I remember getting those letters when I was at the house at the beach and, and so excited. And, you know, my friends would write on the outside of the envelope and everything. And I had a pen pal and, uh, you know, I don't think any of all of that's going to return, but I do think that when a letter comes to the house, it's a big deal in a way that getting an email is not.
0: I'm still pretty good. I'm not, you know, every once in a while i've seen myself write an email condolence note but i i feel like i know when my parents each died those cards and letters i got in the mail i've saved them all i
1: still have them in the file cabinet because they
0: they do tell a story about my parents
1: yep absolutely
0: you know they totally do but you know the other part of the letter writing is I thought about it this morning. There was an article in the New York Times about Richard Goodwin and Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, who were respectively speechwriters, renowned um, biographers of presidents, and they actually had a letter that Richard Goodwin had worked on with Lyndon Johnson announcing uh, the war on poverty. And you saw the the shaping of the conversation as Lyndon Johnson wanted to talk about it. And in fact, Doris Kearns Goodwin is quoted this morning uh, as saying, oh, how I love old handwritten letters and diaries, she enthused. I feel as if I'm looking over the shoulder of the writer, history comes alive. So what's the absence of all of this going to do to our sense of History. How are we going to write biographies in the way that they've been written?
1: I honestly don't know. I think it's potentially devastating. I mean, it was so interesting to talk to Julia Baird, who wrote a brilliant biography of Queen Victoria. Oh, I
0: love that I love that book.
1: It's so good. But she almost gave up the project because she couldn't get access to the letters. Yeah. She knew that the letters were really half the game if not more so and when she finally got access to the letters, she says it's not only what's in the letters it's looking at her handwriting and seeing the times when she clearly is writing really quickly and the handwriting gets really messy and sometimes she's sort of punching up the paper and that gives you this very three-dimensional feeling about the woman and then you think what will we have? I don't know, I mean, Mary Gordon posits in the book that there won't be any more of what we call the papers of famous writers, which are the manuscripts with all the scribbling on them, the crossing out, all that. She says all of that will be sanded off inside mm-hmm. the computer. The, the The manuscript will never leave the computer until it becomes a hardcover book, which means all of those iterations Will be lost inside the computer, and I think that that's a real possibility.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: look, we just finished four years of a presidency during which the president never wrote anything. He famously doesn't write things. Yeah. Right. So, what's what do we have? what, what, What do we have? What what's there to hold on to? Good question.
0: And you know, you talk about the Queen Victoria biography, which I loved. On the same token, <clears throat> the biography that Robert Massey wrote about Catherine the Great, she had like 11 journals that that survived, that he had access to. Journals. And it's not just biographies. I mean, think of all
1: the writers where there's a book like The Letters of Edith Wharton, The Letters of James Joyce, yeah. The Letters of Ernest Hemingway. Again, w- uh, i I just don't see us doing, you know the emails of Alice McDermott
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, i'll be i'll 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 be curious about that, but so we've been talking a lot about civilian writers. I, I want to talk for a minute about professional writers or actually any writer. So a lot of times, and I you know, I've stood next to thousands and thousands of authors as they've signed books, and I've listened to our readers ask writers about how they get started, you know, what to do. So I'm gonna package these all into one sort of uh, run on sentence. Um, Waiting, a lot of writers wanna wait to get it right, that it needs to be perfect. They're trying to figure out the right time of day. They're waiting for an inspiration that if it's hard for you, you're probably not a good writer. Or, um, despite the inspiration of Mary Wellesley, who published her first novel at seventy-one, I even missed that deadline. Um, it that you can start whenever, even even Anna Quinlan wasn't thirty-eight; was only was thirty-eight when she wrote her first novel. Or, as you say, just get your butt in the chair. So, what is the advice for people who want like a checklist for them to start writing? There isn't a checklist.
1: Like, it's like saying, what's a checklist for raising children? Or what's a checklist for a happy marriage? You know, as I say in the book, the way to do it is how you do it. So, you know, people talk all the time about how they go to Starbucks, and they sit there, and they write in Starbucks. If I wrote in Starbucks those 21 books would not exist. Mm-hmm. I cannot do that. I have to have a desk that is set up in a certain way. No, I don't mean to suggest that it's clean and neat and tidy, but it is my desk with my computer on it. Um, that's where I write. Um, I usually write the same time most days. Um, I do not try to get it right. Um, I, You know, as I say in the book, don't get it right, get it written. That's I just try to get words on the page. But I know writers of both stripes. I have friends who, Christopher, my second son and I call them run like hell to the end writers. We we don't like look back and fill. We we just try to get to the end of the book, right? Do you but
0: outline I, it? Like I've heard some no. writers say they outline it.
1: I don't outline, yeah. but there are writers who do outline. Right. And, and I have friends who are writers who write a chapter and then go back and fine tune that chapter. Right after
0: they've written it?
1: Yeah, yes, and then go on to the, the we the, Christopher and I call them back and fill writers. And actually his brother is a back and fill writer, but we affirmatively are not. The thing is, it's like anything else you do, you've got to find your own rhythm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: there are some people who are really good late in the day. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Um, So uh, you have to try to find your own rhythm. And anybody tells you, with that great Somerset mom quote, there are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) Um, There you go. Our
2: next partner, has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I just always forgot about taking my pills and vitamins, and I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now I've been on it for about a couple weeks, and I love it. it. doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins minerals whole food source superfoods probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right the special blend of ingredients supports your gut health your nervous system your immune system your energy recovery focus and aging why do i consume it i'm always on the go and having something that i can mixed together really quickly into a provided bottle is just the easiest way for me to take in the vitamins that I need every day. And not that I'm the most healthiest eater, but I do focus on what I consume. And the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting great is really important to me. And it supports better sleep quality and recovery as well as mental clarity and alertness. And I think that's the best part about Athletics Greens, that it uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And as I said, I care about where my food and everything I consume comes from, and Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, AGP purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforest, And for every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including no kid hungry here in the U.S. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune support and vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go visit athleticgreens.com writebook. Again, that is athleticgreens.com writebook to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. But
0: you know, Anna, the other thing that you talk about—I believe you talk about it in the book—is that it, n- nor is it easy or fun for you to write. I hate writing. Yeah, I hate it. I really, really hate it. So um, why do you do it? What? What's the? What's um, the
1: push? I, I used to be glib and say contractual obligation. Yeah,
0: but that's not and, the answer.
1: And given the fact that both my agent and my editor right now are like, we want the draft of the new novel. I'm sort of feeling contractual obligation. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I say the mortgage has got to get paid. And I, I don't want to underestimate the extent to which many of us do this as a job. Yeah. it's, it's a a job. Bi-
0: You refer to it often as a business, particularly when you were a journalist.
1: Yeah, but
0: it's look.
1: Most days I get here, I sit down and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I start to type. And every once in a while, I start to type. And then I start to type faster. And when I look up, an hour has gone by. Yeah. And I've been typing really fast that whole hour. And those are the days you live for. And that's why you keep on doing it.
0: Yeah. So what I what I'd like to end with is is this Anna? Do you have the book handy? I do. Yes, I do. Okay, great. What? Would you read page one eighty seven? Uh, wait, is it one eighty seven? No, uh, page one eighty nine. Because I think it summarizes. Um, it summarizes in such a beautiful way, Anna both of you are a grandmother, a an eight-year-old, a person who always felt like they wanted to write. It's just exquisite. So- You're talking about the one that begins with voice? Yes. Okay. Yes. So let's end uh, with that.
1: Okay. Voice, think of the word. The challenge for so many of us is that in writing at least, it stands like an unfamiliar thing apart. Instead of honoring our own voice, the one that is so individual and specific, we think of writing in terms of other people's work. The great novels or the beloved young adult book, the history text or the legal papers, the clever lyrics of a favorite song or the popular online postings. People constantly make the mistake of thinking that their words on the page should be the equivalent of dress-up clothes, completely different from every day, a little stiff, a little remote, proper, mannered, a world away from the T-shirt of ordinary talk. Naturally, words on the page may well be sharper, clearer, more specific than idle phone conversation or dinner table ramblings. The syntax may be cleaned up, the images made more resonant. But on the other hand, words on the page, certainly in a journal entry, usually in a letter, should carry the stamp of individuality. There are writers about whom people can say Even if her name was not on it, I would know she wrote it. Not everyone can have a voice that distinctive, but everyone has a voice. Reading your words aloud after you've written them is a powerful way to make this clear. I always do it discover that a sentence is far too long by not being able to breathe through it, hear the almost audible clunk of what looked on the page like a braid of language, but to the critical ear is clearly a snarl and a knot. If you've gone wrong, tried in print to be something you are not in life, the phrases feel like marbles in your mouth. But if you've gotten your own voice down on the page, you will read aloud and think, "Yep, that's it. That's me."
0: Fabulous. So just, just so great. Um, you know, I, I I came away from it. I you know I would say that I can't write, and I couldn't write a novel or a nonfiction or whatever. But you know, this is a reminder that there isn't such a thing as you can't write. Right. You can, can. You write. can everybody write. You can write. You can write. You know. Do you maybe not have grammar right? Do you not have you know the turn of phrase that feels exquisite? But everybody can write, and I I, I think uh, I think Anna, you've just done a great job reminding us uh, in this book that we can, and why we should. Why well, we thank should. You. Thank you, Roxanne. Yeah, so thank you for that. I realized I had a question I've wanted to ask you for years. When you wrote your last column and you were formally leaving the New York Times to write what I think was actually your second novel. Third. Third. But you wrote in the column, or I remember that you wrote in the column that you were a little bit worried that writing fiction meant that you had to stick to the probable. I so, don't think I wrote it in the column. I think I wrote it in
1: a piece about the difference between being a reporter and being a fiction writer. Yeah, so wh- in the Times.
0: which do you like better? Um,
1: it's not a question of which I like better. I still find writing fiction more challenging. Mm. And so it's sort of where I find my home now. But every once in a while, I just decide that there's something like this that's scratching away at the inside of my head. And so I go for it.
0: Yeah. So we've been talking with Anna Quinlan, um, the best selling author of uh, what's 21 books. Her latest book is called Right for Your Life. Anna, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book.
1: Thanks, Roxanne.
0: Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, Please tell all your friends about it. You can uh, find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.
2: As a small business owner, you're juggling 100 balls in the air and don't have time to interview candidates who just aren't qualified for your role. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier for you to find the people you want to interview, faster and for free. Over the past few years, with so many candidates online, it can be a full-time job, just sorting through all the resumes and cover letters and ultimately not finding anyone perfect for the role. And that process is taking time away from doing what I really should be focused on, growing my business. On LinkedIn Jobs, you can create a free job post in minutes to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then you can add the job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. LinkedIn Jobs has simple tools like screening questions to make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. So what are you waiting for? LinkedIn Jobs can help you find candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash JTRB. That's linkedin.com slash JTRB to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.